Well, our dads sure deserve a hand, don't they? So we want to say happy Father's Day to all you fathers, and uh, hope you're going to enjoy your day. No matter what you do, whether you go out to eat or fall asleep on the couch watching the last round of the U.S. Open, something like that, right? You know. So when you think about fathers, who is the best father in the Bible? Think about that for a minute. If you had to name who the best father in the Bible was, who would it be? Maybe Abraham? And then you think about those incidents with Ishmael and Isaac, and eh, maybe not so much. Isaac? Well, he had a favorite. Remember, he played favorites, and his favorite was Esau. Maybe Old Testament Joseph? He seemed to be a good father, but we don't really know a whole lot. Moses? A lot of cool stories he was involved in, but... We don't know much about his fathering. How about David? Well, David was an incredible king and a mighty warrior, but there was a lot of dysfunction in his family because of his fathering. And what I think is interesting is the Bible doesn't hide this. It doesn't hide some of the ugly stories of even some of the biblical heroes. How about Solomon? Well, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. Yeah, let's not even go there with the fathering. How about Job? Now, Job actually seemed to be a really good father. In the first chapter of Job, it talks about that he even offered sacrifices for his kids just in case they had done something or had, it says in their heart, for his children, just in case they sinned or cursed God in their hearts. He was always thinking about them. So, so maybe Job. And of course, we probably think of Joseph in the New Testament, Jesus' earthly father. He had to be a good father. And obviously, we know he had an amazing character because God chose him specifically to be Jesus' earthly father. But we also know that at 12 years old, he, along with Mary, lost Jesus. Remember that? So I don't know. But it's hard, but there's nobody in the Bible that's really lifted up and saying they were an amazing father, except for maybe in the parable of the lost son, the father in that story is an amazing father. And it may not start out, as Jesus is telling that story, a lot of people are going, what do you mean you don't give the kid the inheritance money while you're still alive? What a spoiled brat. Why would a father do that? But as we go through that parable of the lost son, it's an amazing story of how a father really is supposed to be and how our heavenly father really is isn't it if you don't know that story I would encourage you to read that but I want to talk about a father today that may be a little bit of a blind spot to us and I never really thought about this before and I owe this to Max Licato because he wrote about this and it really struck me as I never thought about this before but the father I want us to look at today is Mordecai now some of you go who is Mordecai you remember Esther from the Bible maybe This was her adopted father. So we're going to look a little bit today about Mordecai. And he wasn't a father by choice. He was an adoptive father, maybe even a single dad. For all we know, his wife is never even mentioned in Scripture that we know about at all. We just hear about him being a dad to Esther. Now, we know that he lived about 500 years before Jesus, and he was a minority in an oppressed land. He was part of that group that got taken out of Jerusalem in 586 BC and went to Babylon for some 70 years or so. He probably was a a small kid at that time, but he grew up 
in Babylon. And then as we talked about last week, then the Persians became the world power. And some Jews went back to Jerusalem, but not Mordecai, not Mordecai and his family. Babylonians had been strangely kind to the Jews. And consequently, Nehemiah, Ezra, and Zerubbabel led three different expeditions back from Babylon all the way back to Jerusalem to rebuild not only the temple but a new life for people. And last week, as you remember, we looked at Malachi and he was one who returned to Jerusalem and that's what we talked about last week. But there were some that chose to not go back to Jerusalem, to remain and live their life in Babylon and Persia. And when you look at the book of Esther, do you know it is the only account in the whole Bible of the Jews who chose to remain in Persia and remain in captivity. Very interesting. All the other books are about people that went back to Jerusalem. And it's an interesting insight into the lifestyle and ways and the means of those people who decided to stay behind and live their life. Although it wasn't in Jerusalem, they decided to live there. What you also have in the book of Esther is this drama carefully sewn together by some unnamed author. We don't really know who wrote the book of Esther. We think it might have even been Mordecai himself. But what you have is one of the only two books in the Bible that God's name is not mentioned. Did you know that? God is not mentioned at Esther. Does anybody know the other one? Song of Solomon. God's name is not actually mentioned in either one of those books, but we know they are part of of the Bible. And though God's name is not written in the book of Esther, it seems very obvious that God's fingerprints are on every page. The theme of the book of Esther is the providential hand of God as you read the book of Esther. Now, I know probably everybody hasn't read the book of Esther, and I never want to make people feel like I'm talking about something they have no idea. So I always am excited if somebody hasn't heard or read something that I'm talking about because I hope it encourages you to open up your Bible. And read it. Because you need to know what I'm saying is true. But also there's some amazing things in the Bible. That the more we read it. The more it connects with us. And depending on the season we are in our life. They speak to us in different ways don't they. Depending where we are. And so Esther is no different. But we know that Mordecai is a. Obviously he's a key player in this book of Esther. Even though it's about Esther. We don't know what he does for a living. But we think that he was probably a pretty important person. Because We often find him at the city gates, and in that culture, in the ancient world, those who sat at the city gates were decision makers. They were the wise people that sat around and talked about what was going on and made decisions at the city gates. That's where decision makers hung out. He is Jewish, and we know that he adopts Esther, who seems to be his cousin. Her name is Hadesha, which in Persian means dazzling beauty. So let's go to the, well, before we go to the second chapter of Esther, I want to just give you a little bit of background on the first chapter of Esther. The queen of Persia has enraged King Xerxes. Now, King Xerxes is the king of Persia, and this is the world power at the time. They control 127 providences of the world. Can you imagine how big that is? I mean, it is a huge undertaking. He's a world, but he is very unpredictable. He is very easily swayed by the different people that are in his ear, and he's easily angered. So he's kind of an unpredictable guy. So the queen at the time, they have just had a 180-day banquet. Did you hear me? A 180-day banquet. That's a long time to party, isn't it? 
And during the last part of this, and as, as they're partying for these six months or so, okay, he asks Queen Vashti to come in, and he wants to parade her around because she's so beautiful. But if they've been partying, what are most of these guys at this point? Drunk, exactly. <laughs> and she knows this. You've been partying for six months, and you want me to come in and parade me around as some kind of an eye candy or whatever, and she refuses to come. And so he is enraged that she will not do what her husband says, so he gets rid of her. And he decides that he's going to begin this search throughout the whole 127 providences of his kingdom for a new queen. And that's where chapter 2 we find out about Esther. So we're going to look at that and we'll have that up on the screen this morning. And we're going to start in chapter 2 verse 5. And it says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, and the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her seven female attendants and selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place of the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a, before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months of oil and myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. This is how she would go into the king. Anything she wanted was given to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abahal, he... he to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to the king Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet. Well, he likes parties, doesn't he? And for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the providences and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Now, there is an old German saying. I, I, I understood this is from, a, from German. It's easier to become a father than it is to be one. Have you ever heard that before? I didn't know its origin was in German, but I've heard that before. It's easier to become a father than it is to actually be one. And there are many men who have fathered a child 
but have never actually fathering or never actually were a father to that child. And we know that is true. And maybe even some of you today, when Father's Day comes around, it can be kind of a, a difficult day because of the relationship you have with your father. And if that's the case, I want to say I'm sorry today. That's not the way God certainly intended it to be. But we have an interesting uh, situation here. Mordecai was certainly a fathering father for Esther, even though he wasn't really her biological father, but he did that. We have a principle here about fatherhood. Mordecai decided to be a father. Somehow in the great consequence of events, this little girl lost both her mother and her father, and they're not there for her, and he's a family member, and he could have said, well, I'm, I'm not really wanting to be a dad. I'm her cousin for crying out loud. What do I know about being a father? What do I know about being a dad? We'll find somebody else or maybe we'll send her to Jerusalem so she can be with her people there and surely somebody will raise her. But somehow Mordecai decided I can be her dad. I'm her family member and I'm going to take that on and be her father. Stephen Covey says that Every day, all across America, fathers drive home from work, and some make that decision, and some of us don't. And that decision he's talking about, he says, one of the wisest ways to use your drive home from work is to make a decision to once again adopt your children. Be a dad. Mentally go through the process of taking off your work hat and putting on your dad hat. That's important to do. Whatever it means in your life, from resigning from your work and volunteering to be a father. And it seems like that's what Mordecai did. He became a father to her. And notice that he had, what he had achieved by the time Esther was a young woman. He had built this amazing relationship with her. They seemed to communicate very well with one another. It was an important part of being a father is communicating with their children. And that's not always easy, is it? And especially when they become teenagers. Now, my, my youngest son right now is, in the last year, went from 12 to 13, and I can already see it. There has to be a why for everything. Do you understand where? Y'all remember that, you know? And all of a sudden, me and mom are not nearly as smart as we used to be, you know? And it, you, you just see this, and I've seen it with all of my kids, and y'all are laughing because y'all have been there and done that, but it's very true. But having that communication, and I remember in the last few months, trying to say, I understand you want a why. And I think it's important to give kids why, don't y'all? Sometimes it's not enough just to say, because I said so. But sometimes they want to know why. But after you've given them about five reasons why, and they still are going, but why? Because I said so comes out, you know? But we still have to work on that communication. And Mordecai obviously did this with Esther. Throughout the whole new queen contest, you notice that Mordecai says he was walking back and forth by the palace every day, he was still communicating with her. He wanted to know what was going on. And she knew that he had wisdom and advice. And because she listened and respected him, she does become the new queen. But also we know this is obviously God's providence. But listen, in verse 20, you probably heard and where it says, But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. See, she knew that he had her best interest, and so she continued to listen to his instruction. And you wonder, well, why would he not tell that she was Jewish? Well, he knew, Mordecai knew, that that might come into effect because somebody may go, oh, well, she's a Jew, she can't possibly be the queen. But he said, don't ever say anything. And later it is revealed, but again, it seems to be in God's providence. 
She respected, she honored Mordecai, even as a young woman. And because of the open and strong communication they had within their relationship, that continued even as she was a young woman. This was critical and reminds us, again, of the providence of God in this narrative as we find out later that Mordecai, as he's at the front gate listening in, he uncovers an assassination plot plot towards the king. And he finds out who these two guys are, and he quickly goes and gets a message to Esther and says, you need to let the king know there's these guys who want to kill him, and they are found out, and the king is saved because of Mordecai. And so when Mordecai learns later um, through the right-hand man uh, of Xerxes named Haman, he is the villain in this drama. He is enraged because Mordecai will not bow down to him. Every day when he goes by, people bow down when Mordecai, I mean when Haman walks by, but Mordecai goes, no, I don't do that. I don't bow down to anybody but God. He doesn't say that, but we know he's a devout Jew and he doesn't do it. But now Mordecai decides that he's going to destroy all of the Jews because of their problem. And they all need to be killed, not just Mordecai, but all of them. Those Jews are always going to be a problem, obviously an anti-Semite. And so he's definitely one of those. And so when Mordecai learns of Haman's plot, he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he wails. And when Esther hears of this, she's alarmed. And Mordecai lets her know, you've got to do something. You're the queen. You have the opportunity to do something. And this special communication seems to have left Esther with this very special uh, understanding that God has put her where she is for a specific purpose and a unique destiny. And that's where we get a famous verse from chapter 5 where it says, Mordecai says to her, Do not think because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. He wants to kill all the Jews and he'll find out. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for what? Such a time as this. A lot of y'all could say that with me because you've heard this. So Mordecai's letting her know, we understand how all this has happened. Why our family got drug from Jerusalem to Babylon those 70 years ago, and why your mother and father died, I don't know. But all I know is, is I've become a father to you, and now you're the queen. And who knows, for such a time as this, that you are right where you are. They recognize that God is playing a part in this, even though they don't understand how it all came to this point. But Esther had a decision to make, to try to approach King Xerxes, which was not allowed unless... She was summoned, and as I mentioned, he was known for his unpredictable rages that he would have. And please note the built-in character of Mordecai. If you're acquainted with the book of Esther, you know that before the story is over, she is going to demonstrate courage that will obviously save the nation. But where do you think she learned that character? From her father Mordecai. Now, Crisis, you've probably heard before, we've heard crisis does not develop character, it what? It reveals it. You ever heard that saying before? Crisis does not develop character, it reveals it. And that's true. Another point is that character is not taught, children catch it, it is caught. You can tell, you can do sermons, you can do lectures, but kids seem to understand catching character by the way they see you 
in your own life, in your everyday life, how you treat people, how you handle situations, and how your character is revealed during a crisis situation. They want to see your character in action in everyday life. How do you respond? And if they've seen it, and they tell you, your father tells your kid to do it a different way, they say, but that's not how you do it. They see that. There will be a disconnect in that relationship and that communication if you tell them to do one thing, but yet they see you doing another, and we have to watch that, dads. But apparently Esther had seen Mordecai in more than one crisis situation, and she saw his character come out. And this was one of those situations where their lives were at stake, but not only their lives, but the whole nation of Israel, because he literally was going out into those 127 provinces and saying, we're going to exterminate all the Jews. This was going to happen. And now Esther's like, what are you going to do? Mordecai, what are you going to do, Esther? So apparently Esther had caught some of this courage. And this becomes a story of courage. And we've met Mordecai, we've met Haman. We know that Haman wants to kill all of the Jews. And so that decision was made. And he convinces Xerxes that this is necessary. And so Xerxes, like I said, he's easily influenced. He goes, okay, that's what we'll do then. And he sends out all this. And so when the people in Babylon, in Susa, hear this, there's this pandemonium, there's this panic. What are we going to do? We're all going to be killed. And Mordecai weeps and fasts. And when Esther, his daughter, sees this sees him weeping and fasting, she inquires as to what has happened, and he tells her, Haman wants to kill all of the Jews, and you may have been chosen queen for such a time as this. So it's not easy for Mordecai to send Esther in to see the king, because he knows if she goes in there and he does not acknowledge her, she could be beheaded. It would not be easy. It's not like us... It's hard when we send our kids off to college or to summer camp or something like that or to grandma sometimes. We want to protect our kids. But this is very different. Mordecai knew there was a time in a child's life when they mature and they have to recognize their purpose. Which begs another question for us as dads. What is the purpose we're challenging our children for? What is the purpose? Oh, well, they'll figure it out. No, it's up to us as dads to help them understand who they are in Christ and know that God has a bigger plan for them than just a nine-to-five job. It's bigger than that. What is the purpose we are preparing them for, equipping them for? Are we helping them to have great dreams about God's kingdom? Are we challenging them to think about thoughts about the church and how they fit into that? Are we equipping them for a time when they will be released and then we back off and let God lead them from there? And that's what Mordecai did. There's nothing else I can do. I've raised you. Now you're the queen. I don't have any more control over you. But you're in this position for such a time as this. And Esther knows something. She knows she can't just go walking into the king's throne room. He, she has to be acknowledged. She knows that if she goes in there and he doesn't give her the nod with the scepter, that it could be off with her head. She can't go in unless she's invited. So she tells all the men and women in Persia to fast along with her and with Mordecai for three days. And so that's what they do. She tells others to do what Mordecai's doing. You see, she caught that from him. We don't know what to do, but we're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to go and leave this up to God, but we're going to let him know that we are completely dependent on him. It's beyond their control, and now they seemingly turn it all over to God, who expects them to trust him, but also act and display his character in their actions. And that's exactly what Esther 
And that's exactly what Mordecai did. We know that Esther's scared, but she trusts the character and wisdom of her father, Mordecai. And listen to what she says in verse 16 of chapter 4. Go and gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my attendants, will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's what Esther says. She knows there's a risk here. She boldly goes to the king knowing that it could end badly for her as it could for all of the Jews, but she's willing because her character is there, reflected and caught by her father Mordecai. And as we read Esther, even with no actual mention of God, we see again that God is intervening in all this drama. God put her in that position. God put Mordecai in that position to hear about the assassination attempt. And as the king sees that day, she comes to the big day and she approaches the king. And he sees her and he holds out the gold scepter. Can you imagine how long that must have been as she's waiting? Is he going to give me the okay? Is he going to give me the okay? And he does. And he hails out the gold scepter and she was able to approach the king. And she's strategic. So she knows how to get to his heart. What do you want? Anything you want, queen... I would like to have a banquet for you. See, she knows how he is. He loves this party. And so she says, I'm going to throw a banquet for you. So they have a party. And then she says, what do you want at the party? He goes, just one more party tomorrow night, and I'll finally tell you what I want. But I want Cayman to come too. So she invites them for a second night. But as he goes back to the palace that night, he can't sleep. And he again, through God's providence, asks for the chronicles to be brought to him. And these are the um, uh, how they record what has happened in his reign so far. And as he's looking through it, he reads about Mordecai a few months ago has exposed this assassination attempt. And he goes, has anything been done for Mordecai because he did that and saved my life? And they said, no, nothing's been done yet. So then as he's reading this and deciding we ought to do something for Mordecai, Haman is coming to him to say, I just built these gallows and I'm going to hang Mordecai on them. And he goes, before he can even get it out, he goes, hey, what should we do for a man that the king delights to honor? And of course, because of his arrogance, Haman thinks it's him. And he goes, well, you should parade him around in royal display, put robes on him. And he goes through all this stuff because he thinks he's talking about him. And he goes, well, I want you to do that for Mordecai. And Haman can't believe it. I've got to do this for Mordecai. So he has to parade him around. And then at the end of this um, day, which is humiliating for him, he now still has to go to the banquet. And it was the beginning of the end for Haman. It gets worse as Esther reveals that night at the banquet that she is Jewish and Haman has put together this whole plot to kill not only her, but her whole people, all of her people. And then the king decides that that's not going to happen and Haman gets hung on his own gallows. Well, the last three chapters of Esther are a great reversal. Not only is Haman out of the picture, but Mordecai and the Jewish people are saved and he becomes the king's right-hand man. And even though this powerful, unpredictable, and easily influenced king, God works through the character of Mordecai and Esther in this whole thing. The crisis they were in did not develop the character. It revealed the character that they had been developing all along in his daughter. It had already been developed in Esther through a godly father. So we should never underestimate the influence of a good father. I was listening today, I think it was something on Dr. Dobson, and he said that a psychologist has written a book recently about the development of babies. And he said that within eight weeks of birth, that babies can distinguish between the care of their mother and the care of their father. 
eight weeks. Isn't that amazing? They know, and that's the way God has set it up, that children need a father and a mother, right? That's the way God wanted it to be because there's characteristic traits of both. And babies, even at eight weeks, can figure that out. They see that. They can uh, sense that. And so, dads, we sometimes don't really know what we're doing, right? There's times I just shake my head and say, I never saw this coming. But we're sowing seed with these children, some of whom have already left the house. Some of y'all have grandchildren. Realize the everyday importance of your influence on your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And your kids may not necessarily change the world, but they might change their neighborhood. They might change their school. They might change their workplace. And may God give all of us as dads or grandfathers, great-grandfathers, the strength and the wisdom to say at the right time to our kids or our grandkids or our great-grandkids, that position you're in right now may be brought to you by God. You were in that position for such a time as this. Maybe that's why you're in this position. And may he give us the right words to say. May you never be called upon, we might not ever be called upon to speak to a king or a queen who's going to the throne room, but you may be called to speak to a teenager who's interested in dabbling in something that could be very destructive in their life, whether that's drugs or sexual issues. And you're going to be called to stand face-to-face with an adolescent who has failed miserably because of their choices. And they don't need to hear a lecture. They need grace, don't they? They need to hear grace and love. And you'll be called to stand face-to-face with our children sometimes when they're confused, when they need direction. And they don't need compromise. In those times, they need to be told firmly and sternly the direction they need to go, just as Mordecai said to Esther. So I hope God will give us as fathers and grandfathers the wisdom not only to know the right thing to do, but have the courage to do the right thing. And that's something I pray for my kids, is that my kids will know the right thing, have the wisdom to know the right thing, but also have the courage to do the right thing. Because a lot of times they know the right thing, don't they? They just don't have the courage to do the right thing. But Esther did, and that was instilled in her by her father Mordecai. And lastly, never underestimate the significance of discipling and mentoring a child. Esther was this little Jewish orphan girl who had lost both her mother and the father when we first meet her in chapter 1. And then all of a sudden... She's the queen of Persia who made huge difference in the lives of her people. And some of us have come from some of those humble beginnings and, and obscure places, but God uses all of us. Remain faithful to God. Hear your call in his life and instill that into your kids and allow God to develop his character in you and in your children. And kids, if there's any kids here today, also catch and imitate the character of your father as he reflects the character of our Heavenly Father. Well, today we're going to offer an invitation as we always do. Maybe as you're hearing that, God has been set up in God's Word as a Father. And like I said, for some people that might be hard because the Father that you knew was a difficult one. It's like, well, that's not the example I want to know, but that's the example that God gave us. And just because maybe a father was not the father he was supposed to be, God is always going to be the father he's supposed to be to us, isn't he? And he's done that ultimately through giving his own son, Jesus. So there may be somebody here today that needs to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior and start to develop that relationship with your Heavenly Father. And if you need to do that today, we want to offer that 
If not, we also offer the invitation to join a church who we believe that God is our Heavenly Father, and we try to develop His character in this church, and maybe you're looking for a church home like that, so we offer that as well. So we're going to stand at this time, and if you have a decision today, we'd ask you that you come forward at this time. <clears throat>